Father, we thank you that we have a solid foundation, a firm foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing yourself in the person of your son. Thank you for all that he is to us, all that we have to look forward to in him, that he is the one that we are looking forward to be with. He is our destination and he is also our pathway. I am the door. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, open your word, allow your Holy Spirit to minister to our need, whatever that may be. We ask that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Please have a seat. When I was young, talking probably elementary or middle school age, it was very natural for me to turn to my dad for help. Uh, Whether that was academics or sports or hobbies, he knew everything, he could do anything, uh, and he was willing to help. Uh, As I got older, I tried to do more and more things on my own. You know, my dad was, was busy. He had work responsibilities, family responsibilities, a lot of things going on. He had a lot of things on his plate, and I really didn't want to bother him. My dad was always willing and ready uh, to help, um, especially after he retired. But as I got older, there were probably less and less things that he could actually help me with. I'm experiencing kind of the same thing as a parent uh, today. You know, my kids, uh, there was a time when they would come to me for help, with, with, whether it was schoolwork or other things that they needed to get done, but now I have kids who are pretty much grown, and they, they don't need as much help anymore. But it's a real joy to me when they do come, and they ask me for help, and I'm able to help them. And some, sometimes I'm, I'm actually happier to give them the help than they are to receive the help. You know, some of us have a similar experience in our relationship with God, when we're young, we tend to go to Him for just about everything. Little things, big things, simple things, complex things, it really doesn't matter what they are, but over time, we feel like we should be able to handle more things on our own. We tend to not go to Him as much, and when we do turn to Him, we have this question, when is it okay? When is it appropriate for us to go to him for help? And when we do turn to him, we we ask this question, um, how can we be sure he will help? How can we be sure how he will respond? You know, what are the conditions that we need to meet to make sure that we get the help that we need? You know, perhaps it's the, the, the size of the need, the magnitude of the need, or the complexity or the level of difficulty that's associated with the challenge. Uh, perhaps it's our lack of resources or our lack of ability. Is it the sincerity or intensity of our request that determines how he will respond? We're going to see that while those things are relevant, they really aren't the primary things. Uh, the passage we're going to look at today gives us some excellent insight into when we should ask and how you can be sure about a response. 
Okay? And I'm going to kind of give the takeaway right from the beginning. What we're going to see is it's okay to reach out to the Lord for help in any situation, every situation. We may not always feel that way, but that's the reality. And the key factor that really ensures a divine response is not the lack of our resources. It's not really the sincerity of our requesting. It really comes down to faith. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to 11 of John chapter 2. Okay, John chapter 2, starting in at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So chapter 1 sort of sets the stage or the background for this. In chapter 1, we read about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which really involved calling the first uh, disciples. For the most part, he called them one by one, although there were some situations where one disciple would bring another disciple. The words that we kind of read over and over again are come and see. And those who came and saw were pretty convinced, were definitely convinced, that he was the Messiah. So they left behind families, homes, livelihood to follow Jesus. It was really his person and his words that drew them. About two weeks ago, we heard about a man named Nathaniel who was just astounded that the Lord Jesus knew him on the inside, knew what was going on in his head and in his heart. The Lord was amazing people. He was amassing a following. But for the most part, his ministry was kind of under the radar. Just a rabbi uh, traveling with his disciples. John chapter 2 really reflects a transition or a change in his ministry. It describes the first miracle, which was also a sign. It gives us some insight into the character and the motivation and the methods of the Lord Jesus. Now, before we really dig into this passage, I want to put something, plant something into your brain to kind of think about as we go through this passage. So, this was, I guess, almost 24 years ago, but my wife and I spent about six months 
uh, planning our wedding. My wife, obviously, more so than me. But there was a lot of things that go into planning a wedding. And the meal is, is kind of the centerpiece. It's the big deal. Now, some of you have been involved in planning a wedding, and if not, you've probably been involved in planning social events. It could be a dinner party or some other kind of social event. And just think about how much effort goes into making sure that you have a meal. Uh, in the case of Jewish weddings, for example, it could last several days. And so you needed to be sure that you had enough good food and good drink to quench people for an extended period of time. Also, we read a little bit about the master of the feast. If you recall, he said, you know, you keep, you give, you send out, you put out the, the good wine first, but then you keep some not so good wine, the cheap stuff, uh, in reserve. But, but running out was just unheard of. Nobody ran out of wine, okay? So how likely is it that the situation that happens here in John chapter 2 is the result of just poor planning? And is it a coincidence that the Lord Jesus just happens to be there at this wedding where the wine runs out? Okay? Just want you to think about that as we look through this passage. So John chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that the Lord Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Um, we don't really know, we aren't told the connection between the Lord Jesus and his disciples, but it, it's pretty clear that the invitation was because of Jesus' mother Mary. We may be tempted to just kind of skip over this first part as something that just kind of lays the context for the, the more sensational part of this passage, uh, which is really about the narrative about turning water into wine. And, and to a certain extent, that would be understandable. I mean, the miracle that we read about in verses 6 to 11 is really the more memorable part of this passage. It's the part that people remember. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's a pretty remarkable miracle. It's a miracle that has never been replicated. Okay? And the second part, as verse 11 suggests is that this miracle had a very profound impact on Jesus' disciples. But I think it would be a mistake to kind of skip over these first five verses. You know, the less sensational, but I think, in my opinion, the more truly significant part or aspect of this passage is the insight that it gives us into the really deep faith that we see in Jesus' mother Mary. And actually, I think that's really the story, the main story of this, of this passage. It's Mary's faith and her persistence that brings about this miracle. And it's her faith that inspires belief in the disciples. I think there's also two really important takeaways in these first five verses that we shouldn't miss. Okay? The first observation is that the Lord Jesus intentionally affirms biblical marriage and public weddings as the appropriate start to a God-honoring marriage. Now, for generations in this country and probably world 
wide, there has been an active effort to diminish, dilute, and marginalize traditional marriage. Marriage and public weddings have been characterized as being old-fashioned, obsolete, unnecessary. Now today, there's even an active effort to redefine marriage. Okay? But the fact remains that God established marriage and defined the institution of marriage between a man and a woman as something that lasts a lifetime. We can read about that in Genesis chapter 2. We won't go there this morning. And he declares it good when it was established and he has never redefined it. Now, even by Jesus' day, marriage had likely drifted from the ideal under which it was established. But Jesus not only attends a wedding, but he actively participates in it. In fact, he even, in a way, saves the day at the wedding. This should make it clear that God has and continues to value marriage and weddings. I think that's a conviction that we should share and that we should live according to that. So the second observation is the Lord Jesus intentionally demonstrates great honor and respect for his mother. John begins the narrative by saying Jesus' mother was there. It's likely that she had an important role. She was connected with the family. Jesus is a very respectful and obedient son in accepting the invitation and attending the wedding. Now by this time, he is over 30 years old. He is an established rabbi, a preacher. He has begun his life work and mission. Um, He certainly could have declined the invitation citing the higher priority of the ministry or teaching his disciples, but he doesn't do that. He prioritizes honoring and obeying his mother. Not only that, but he honors her by taking action to help in a situation that was obviously very important to her. He also saves the day for those families and the bride and groom as well. But the way that the Lord Jesus treats his mother underscores the importance, I believe, that God places on showing honor to parents. And that responsibility, that obligation does not end when we become adults. All right, so getting into the passage itself, you know, the trigger for all of the things that are are going to happen in this passage is Mary's discovery. Mary learns that they have run out of wine. You know, if she did have a stake in the wedding, this was a serious problem. This is a serious issue. But we get some insight here into Mary's character. Okay? We see a glimpse of it in Luke chapter 1 when Mary is informed that as a virgin, she is going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. That's Luke chapter 1 verse 32. That was a really unexpected and life-altering message that the angel delivered. But her calm response is, let it be unto me 
according to your word. You know, her focus is not on the impact that this message is going to have on her. It's the fact that this is going to give her an opportunity to glorify God. We see the exact same perspective here. You know, running out of wine is not a catastrophe. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. That's how she looks at it. Okay? So how does she react? Notice there is no anxiety or panic, right? Her first recourse is to submissively turn to the Lord and seek for his glory. Now, isn't it amazing that 30 years later, her relationship with God is the same. It hasn't changed. Now, there's no explicit request in Mary's statement, but Jesus' response makes it pretty clear that there is an implied expectation or request, and he gets it. Okay? Some action is expected, or at least there's a door that's being opened for some action to be taken. Now, Jesus says two things in response. He says, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. Now Jesus' response may seem on the surface to be somewhat harsh and negative, but I don't think that's the case. I think what we'll see is that it's a very honest, loving and respectful response of a son to his mother. So let's just look at these two statements here. Okay? What did Jesus mean by, what does this have to do with me? Well, if you think about it, this is a pretty reasonable response. We probably would have reacted the same way. The wedding and really everything to do with it, including managing the wine, was someone else's responsibility. Someone else was in charge. Okay, nobody had put the Lord Jesus in charge of that responsibility. And it stayed that way until someone intentionally put him in charge. Someone put him in control. That had not happened yet. So what about the second statement? My hour has not yet come. Well, I'd like to suggest that this is likely a response to a thought that Mary has but has not spoken out loud. Okay? Mary knows her son. She knows who he is. She knows why he's come. She's known this for the past 30 years. And Jesus had been living largely in obscurity for for decades now, but just recently, as recently as a couple of days ago, he began a very public ministry as a rabbi and a teacher. Mary also knows, or at least strongly suspects, that what this whole situation with the wine is not just a coincidence. This is divinely orchestrated. Could this be the opportunity for Jesus to reveal who he is? Jesus' response is interesting. My hour has not yet come. One way to interpret that is there is an hour. It's coming, but it hasn't come yet. Today isn't the day, and this isn't the way. Now, this is, this is just conjecture on my part, but 
I get the feeling, I get the sense that they've had this conversation before. Now, it's not uncommon for a parent to sort of hold back their children sometimes if they, for fear that they might fail in a situation or that they might be embarrassed or maybe experience something worse. But that isn't the case with Mary. She knows that Jesus has a mission. And she is ready for him to engage in it, even though the result of it may be heartbreak and loss. Now, there's no indication that she had ever seen Jesus do anything like a miracle before, but she knows that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and she is confident that he could and would do something. I notice something here. She is his mother, but she doesn't limit Jesus by offering suggestions on how to solve the problem. That would be really tough for some of us parents. Okay? We, we think we know what's best, and, and in many cases we probably do, but that's not Mary. Mary knows her place. She is a creature. He is the creator. Her knowledge and ability is infinitesimal. His is infinite. Now, reading the exchange, when we read the exchange that happens between Jesus and Mary, the impression we might walk away with is that he is denying or rejecting her request. But I I really don't think that's the case. I don't think this is a rejection. In fact, if we look through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and we will as we go through the book of John, we'll see that there is hardly ever, hardly ever a rejection or a denial of a legitimate request. A couple of examples that I'll bring to you. A a rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 17. A rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus and asks this question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now we learn in that passage that he has some misconceptions. Okay? His motivation is not quite correct, but the Lord Jesus responds to his request. He says he loves him and he responds. He gives him some information, even though he ends up going away. Another example, this happens later in the ministry, James and John come along with their mother. And they make a request. Or actually, the mother makes the request. I want my sons to sit on your right hand and left hand in the kingdom. The Lord Jesus does respond to it. He says, are you sure you know what you're you're asking? But his response is, this is not my prerogative. This is the prerogative of my father. So we see that in some cases, uh, when a request comes, there is a misconception or an incorrect expectation that that needs to be corrected first. There are other situations where there is a delay in the response because there is something that needs to be accomplished or because a delay is going to bring greater glory to the Father. Think of the situation with Lazarus in John chapter 11. What about Mary? In Mary's case, before responding... Jesus wants to give Mary an opportunity to demonstrate 
the genuineness of her faith. Now, it isn't that her faith is weak uh, or that the situation or Jesus' challenge is going to create faith or strengthen her faith. She always had faith. But Jesus wants to display that faith because he wants his disciples to see it and be inspired by it. A similar scenario is recorded in Mark chapter 7, verses 27 to 30. We won't turn there, but there's a Syrophoenician woman who comes to the Lord Jesus. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She comes to the Lord Jesus and begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus' initial response is, it is not fit, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that seems like a pretty disheartening response. But she does not give up. She presses on and she ends up getting her miracle. Now both Mary and the Syrophoenician woman had a need that was beyond their capability. But it wasn't just the need that got them their miracle. It wasn't even the fact that they came to Jesus and asked him to help. What made the difference? They exercised faith in Jesus and they demonstrated that faith in a very visible way. Now Mary demonstrates her faith by commanding the servants, do what he tells you to do. That was her visible demonstration of faith. We don't know for sure if she had any authority to command them, but they did follow her instructions. It could just be at that point they had run out of all the options and they, they didn't really have anything to lose. But whatever the case is, Mary's faith is a tremendous inspiration, a marvelous example to the disciples. So I think the tremendous lesson here in this passage is the potency of faith and the impact that it has on the response we get from God. Okay. But I don't think that's the whole story. All right? There are some other important lessons that we need to see here in the way that Jesus chooses to act, in the way that he performs this miracle. I think there's a real, some lessons there. Okay? You can sort of think of this as bonus content. I'm just going to introduce these. We won't go through them in detail. I encourage you to look into it yourself. I think there's a real blessing. Now, Jesus could have solved this problem in a number of different ways. Okay, just two that come to mind. He could have just refilled the empty wine canisters. Or he, he could have produced an endless supply of wine from a single jug. Kind of like Elijah did, right, with the widow. But he doesn't do it in that way. He chooses this specific way of how he's going to perform the miracle. He directs the servants to fill six purification pots with water. Each of those were about 30 gallons. And then he waits for them to do that. That would have taken some time. Then he tells the servants, go draw out some of the liquid and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tastes this water that has been turned into wine, and not just the cheap stuff, right, but the good quality stuff. Now, obviously, 
a miracle happen at some point, but when? Did it happen all at once? Did it happen in stages? We really don't have any idea. Okay? We know a miracle happened. So why does Jesus choose to act in this particular way? Well, I would suggest, I think there are some principles that are brought out here that are going to be repeated, that we're going to see again in his ministry. I think the first principle is outward cleansing, outward purification is empty and it's useless. What's needed is an inward work. Now the Jews with whom the Lord Jesus contended through most of his ministry, they were focused on the externals, external purification, external cleansing. There was an elaborate processes that they went through to be ritually clean. Jesus made it clean that out, made it clear that outward rituals do not earn you favor with God. In fact, he came to replace those meaningless outward rituals with an inward transformation. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We don't need a bath. We don't need hand washing. We need to be renewed in our minds and in our hearts. That's only something that can happen from the inside. That is a divine work. And trying to get satisfaction by conforming to the world around us is going to leave us empty. Jesus came to fill us on the inside. Not with water or even wine, but with himself, with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What's the sense there? Well, someone who is filled with wine is under the influence of the wine. Jesus wants us to be under the influence, right? Not of wine, but of the Spirit. So that's one observation. The second observation is Jesus gives abundance, abundant life. He could have just said, fill one water pot or two water pots. That probably would have met the need uh, at the wedding. But he says, fill six. Okay. Jesus isn't stingy. He doesn't just barely meet the need. He provides an abundant supply with stuff left over. John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life that they might have it more abundantly. Now we see the same thing in John chapter 6 with the loaves and the fish. To God, quantity makes no difference. It's not the size of the miracle that is important. It is the faith behind the miracle. That's what he values. Something else to think about, you know, when the water in those jugs were turned to wine neither the water or those jugs could be used for purification anymore. But that's the point. We no longer need the water because Jesus has given us wine. So one thing I learned when when I was young was that when I turned to him, I had to be willing to trust my dad and let him decide what help to give and how to give that help. 
You know, I tend to follow, I try to follow the same process with my kids. doesn't always work. But it just doesn't work if they ask me for help, but they don't trust me to give the help that I think they need and in the way that they need. And we learn in John chapter 2 that Jesus is willing and able to help in every situation. There isn't anything that's too small, too large, too hard for him. But we need to trust him and let him work the way that he deems is best. And the Lord will sometimes challenge us and give us an opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. We need to be prepared to have that faith challenged. Mary here provides a great example in an object lesson to the disciples in faith. She responds in a very confident and positive way to the challenge that she receives because she knows her Savior. She is happy to turn over control to the Lord Jesus and let him work out the miracle in the way that he wants to. Do we have that kind of faith in who Jesus is and what he is able to do? Are we willing to demonstrate that faith by turning over control to him? That could be turning over control of finances, relationships, your job, your kids, control over addictions and struggles that you have in your life. Now, you don't need to get to the point where you're in over your head and you're desperate before you turn to him. In fact, I think what the Bible encourages us to do is to walk regularly by faith and daily turn over control of things uh, in your life to him, not just when things go wrong. And I'll leave you with one closing thought. You know, the, the miracle of the wine certainly shows us the ability of the Lord Jesus to meet our need abundantly. We're talking material needs, okay? But I think it also foreshadows a much greater provision. The wine is used in Matthew chapter 26 and other places as a symbol or a picture of the blood that the Lord Jesus shed for our redemption, shed on the, on the cross for our redemption. Matthew chapter 26 The Lord Jesus takes a cup of wine and he passes it to his disciples and says this, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what's Jesus' deeper message here in providing the wine? Jesus can satisfy our greatest need, which is not material. Our greatest need is for salvation for eternal life, for redemption. Jesus can offer eternal life because he paid for our sins by shedding his blood on the cross. Now in Matthew chapter 26, verse 18, the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover with my disciples in your house. Now when Jesus says my time is at hand, 
he is referring to or talking about being formally presented to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. That happened at the triumphal entry when he came into Jerusalem. And it was followed shortly thereafter with his rejection, his crucifixion, and his death. That's the same hour that he was referring to in John chapter 2 when he said, my hour has not yet come. The Lord Jesus knew when his hour was coming and he knew how it would come. It was not the way that Mary wanted. But isn't it amazing that Jesus' mother was right there when the hour came. She was right there at the foot of the cross. She's there right at the beginning. She's there right at the end. Now that is solid faith. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood, not for anything he did, but for your sin and for my sin. Have you believed, have you confessed that he died for you? Have you put your faith in him for salvation? You know, if you've been trying to fill yourself with other things, or if you are trying to go through outward rituals to please God or make yourself right with God, those things are empty. Those things are of no value. Your sincerity is not going to earn you favor with God. Jesus responds to faith. Simple. Anyone can exercise faith. Will you put your faith in him today? If you haven't done so yet, will you put your faith in him? Let him have control and trust him for eternal life.